again. So last Sunday, Pastor Dan was teaching in the Gospel of John. And this morning, we're in the first epistle or the first letter of John. It's the same writer, the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest disciples. And, of course, it's the same author, which is God. Um, and Dan began last Sunday with a really simple question. He said, what is your greatest need? And after giving us some time to think about it, he said there's three basic needs that every person has. And the first, foremost need, do you remember what it was? Love. It was love. People need to be loved. Well, maybe the timing's good because Valentine's Day is coming up in just over two weeks, right? A day when the world celebrates love and affection. Now, I'm not sure what your Valentine's practice is. Maybe you buy flowers or chocolates or go out to dinner. Um, and that's all good. I mean, hopefully you don't do it just once a year. Uh, a Jim Allen quote, Valentine's Day is for rookies. Is that right, Jim? So... Man up, we can do it more than once a year. But, you know, maybe you at least get a card, um, fill it out, something that communicates what's on your heart. And it's always kind of weird going to the card store and trying to find something that says kind of what you want to say. Well, I came across some unique Valentine's Day cards. I, I, yeah, uh -oh. <laughs> I don't think you'll find them at any Hallmark store. Here's a sample. Looking back over the years that we've been together, I can't help but wonder, what was I thinking? <laughs> or, I've always wanted to have someone to hold, someone to love, and after having met you, I changed my mind. <laughs> or this one. As the days go by, I think of how lucky I am that you're not here to ruin it for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or one more. When we're together, you always said, when we were together, you always said you would die for me. Now that we've broken up, I think it's time you kept your promise. <laughs> now, I hope none of you are thinking, where can I get a hold of a couple of those cards? <laughs> Whether pretend you won't find them in Hallmark. You'll have to make them yourself. Crafting event coming up <laughs> soon. Pastor Paul told me so <laughs> to do it. He said to make <laughs> Oh, well. So one of the greatest needs we have is a need to be loved. But what does that love look like? I think the world is really confused when it comes to what love actually is. I went to a website. And John, it's not coming up for me if you can hit the button. I went to this website called healthyhappylife.com. I was drawn there by an article that was written by the founder of the website called 101 Things I Love. And so, in a moment, you'll see it. Oh, there we go. Yeah, that's okay. I'll back it up. Watch this. We'll get it there. 101 Things I Love. We'll just take it from there. The first was her husband, and I thought, well, that's kind of cool. That's noble. But then look at number two, my cats. <laughs> okay, my friends, my family and friends, that's all good. Number five, rainy days, uh, smoothies, warm towels, 
twinkly lights, and it just kind of goes on and on. 101 things that this person loves. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I like smoothies. I can tolerate cats. But how can, have, how can somebody have the same kind of relationship to their spouse as they do to a cat or a smoothie? See, one thing that's real apparent from this website is that we use the term love very casually, don't we? Would you agree? So what is this love that people so desperately need? What does it look like? Where does it come from? And what does it have to do with us? Well, that's exactly what our text is going to answer this morning. And so the series we're in, as you're probably aware, is called Absolute Certainty. It's a study of, it's on that side, a study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And the message title this morning is Absolute Certainty in Loving One Another. And the text is going to be 1st John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And we'll find three parts to the outline. First, love is defined in verses 7 and 8. Love is demonstrated in 9 and 10. And love is displayed in verses 11 and 12. And so if you brought your Bible with you or your phone app, follow along with me as we read through the text first. And I'll be reading from the 1984 NIV translation. So beginning in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now this topic of love is such an enormous topic. A message on this could go all kinds of directions and could go on for probably days and days. But one of the things I like about teaching the word of God, not teaching from the word of God, but teaching the word of God is that the text itself gives us the outline and the constraints, the content of the message. We don't want to just pay the word lip service by reading it and then go off and do our own thing. We want to stick to the text and let that lead us in the topic. And so that's, that's the heart of expository teaching, to expose, to draw out, to unpack what God is put into that passage so that we can understand and explain it. So that's what we're going to be doing. And with that in mind, we're, let's dig into the first two verses, first of all, where we're going to see how love is defined. And so the central thought in this whole passage is given right up front in verse 7. He doesn't work up to it, lead up to it. He says it right up front. Dear friends, let us love one another. Now, everything else in this passage is in support of this one point, to love one another. And this is not the first time we've seen it in this, 
in the Bible or in even this letter. It's been in there repeatedly. But back in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And John said earlier in this letter, in chapter 3, verse 11, he said, This is the message you heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. And then in chapter 3, verse 23, he said, And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So this idea of loving one another is nothing new. It's been in here before. But, as is often the practice of John in his letters, he introduces a topic, he adds a little more to it, and now he's going to go into even more detail on this topic of love. If you've spent any time around little children, you know that one of their favorite simple little questions is, why? Right? You, you hear it a lot. It's time to get ready for school. Why? You have to finish your dinner before you play. Why? Don't forget to put your toys away. Why? It's just a, a simple one-word question, but what that little child is asking is, what is the reason and the purpose for doing this? So when you hear this opening statement in our text, dear friends, let us love one another, just kind of channel your inner child and ask the simple question, why? Why? Well, I'm glad you asked, <laughs> and God is too, because the whole rest of this passage is answering the question, why? Why should we love one another? He said, dear friends, let us love one another for, or because, in some translations, because love comes from God. Love comes from God. That's the beginning of the reason. But it's not the only part of the reason. Think about what else John has covered in this letter that either comes from God or is of God. Can you think of anything that we've covered? Shout it out. From God or of God? What's from God or of God? What other things? Our life, okay. What else is from God? Freedom? Peace? Creation? Think of some that are specific now to this letter of John that we've been talking about. Truth. truth? Okay, the word of God, the truth of God. Yeah, these are some of the things that are from God or of God. So I went through chapter, uh, I went through 1 John and I made a list of these things. And not only does love come from God, but let's look at some other things that also come from God. First one, how about this? The children of God. It's mentioned many, many times in here. If you are a believer, you are a child of God. You yourself are of God, it says. He said, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God in chapter 3. And in verse 2 of chapter 3, it says, dear friends, now we are children of God. So if you are a believer, you are of God. Not only that, it speaks of those who are born of God. 
Again, one and the same. What else is of God that we've seen? The Spirit of God. We've seen that in chapter 4. The Son of God. The Son who was from God. The Word of God, somebody called out. The truth of His Word. The will of God. All of these things are of God or from God. So why does it matter that we love one another? Because love is from God. And consider this. If, in fact, we are children of God, who are born of God, and have the Spirit of God, and the Son of God, and the Word of God, and we know the will of God, shouldn't we be displaying the love of God? The answer is, of course, yes. And this is exactly what verse 8 says. Verse 7 says, and verse 8. It's so clear that verse 8 can go on to say, whoever does not love God, does not love, does not know God, because God is love. In other words, you can't be a child of God who's born of God and has the Spirit of God and the Son of God and the Word of God and knows the will of God without, without displaying the love of God. It's impossible. So go ahead, ask the simple question again. Why? Why is that impossible? Because when believers are born of God, which is what it says in our passage, they receive something very special from God. It's something they did not have before, and it's something they could not have before. It's not just forgiveness and eternal life, although we do receive those, but we receive something else. We receive the love of God. When we're born of God, we receive internally this love of God. Romans 5.5 5 says God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Salvation and love are so intertwined that you can say they are the very evidence of salvation. Love is the very evidence of salvation or the lack thereof. In other words, if you don't display the love of God, then you're not born of God. That's what verse 8 says. They go hand in hand. Someone this week was describing to me a very difficult relationship she has at home with an unbelieving spouse. And she described how so much of what this person does is selfish and self-centered and hurtful and even hateful. He's filled with degrading, disparaging, hurtful words. But is it any wonder? He doesn't love. In fact, he cannot love because he doesn't know God. And when this passage talks about knowing God or not knowing God, it's not talking about knowing about God. It's talking about a close, personal, ongoing relationship with God. Even an intimate relationship with God. That's the word knowing. It's gnosis. It's the word that God uses for marital intimacy between a husband and a wife. He cannot love with a godly love, because he doesn't know God. There's no relationship with God. 
So for an unbelieving spouse, if you have an unbelieving spouse, this can be a real trial. It can be painful. It can be hurtful. He has no relationship with God because his human spirit hasn't been joined to the Holy Spirit of God as we talked about a couple weeks ago. God's love hasn't been poured into his heart. And so he cannot take on the divine attributes of God. He doesn't love because he doesn't know God. Maybe you find yourself in a similar situation with a spouse or a family member or a co-worker. I mean, it's, it's a painful trial. So what do you do in that type of situation? Well, hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it in the third section. Love is from God. And that's why we, as children of God, are to love one another. But what is this love? Is it talking about a relationship to our spouse or our cat or to smoothies? Is that what it is? No. How is love defined then? If you look in the dictionary, the most common definitions say love is an intense feeling of deep affection. Or another common definition is a great interest or pleasure in something. That kind of describes what we saw in that list of of things that this person loves. But if love is really just a feeling, then we're in trouble. Because in some cultures, they love their fellow man. And in other cultures, they kill and eat their fellow man. And both of them do it based on feelings. It's got to be something more than feelings, right? Sometimes when I'm doing a prep for a, a message... And I want to get an idea of kind of what the world, how they view a particular topic. Maybe it's a topic like discernment or compassion or faithfulness. Here's something I do. I do an image search. Put in a word, compassion. And then click on images and see what comes up. And some of them are really, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Some of them really capture the heart of that particular topic. But if you did a search on love with the filter, <laughs> what do you think you would find? Well, I, I did the work for you this week. <laughs> I did a search, an image search on love, and here's what I found. This is the first, I don't know how many pages. And you know the little hearts down there in the lower right? That was a Christian academy. That was their picture of love. So you see a lot of this affection and feelings and and whatnot. But the problem, what makes this so difficult, is that in the English language, we have one word for love. But the Greeks, they had four different words for love. You, I'm not telling you anything you don't probably know, but there were four different words that they used for love. And the first one is storge. And this is like a natural, familial love. It's the love that a mother would naturally have for a child. And so, you'll find this word, you won't find it in, in that form in the New Testament, but you'll find the negative version of it, twice only. So, there it's talking about if you don't love your family, a lack of love for family. But storge is in the New Testament in a negative form twice. Then there's the word phileo, which is a close friendship or brotherly love. Some might say a platonic love. That's in the Bible quite a bit. We, it's where we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. 
Then there's eros, where we get the word erotic, and it refers to sexual or romantic love, and our culture is consumed with eros. But do you know what? That word is not even in the New Testament a single time. You won't find it. So it cannot be eros, the type of love that the, the epistle of John is talking about. And then there's the final form of love, the final word, agape. And we talked about this several weeks ago. It's a self-sacrificing divine love. I didn't find a single image that captured the essence of agape love. Nothing. It's just not the way our culture thinks about love. Now, you may remember last week, Pastor Dan noted that in John chapter 16, I thought this was a fascinating point. God uses both the word agape and phileo to speak of his love for us. I thought that's cool. We always hear about God's agape love, his unconditional, selfless, divine love. And God does love us in that way. But it also spoke of his phileo love, his affection for us. God not only loves us, he likes us. He wants to be near us. I thought that was really cool. So we have these four words for love, but really only two of them are in the New Testament and to any extent, phileo and agape. And in the first two verses of our text, the word love is used five times. Dear friends, let us, not, let us love one another for love comes from God Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Five times. Every single one of those is agape love. It's speaking of agape love. Notice how verse 8 ends. It ends with the words, God is love. Now when we hear that, we probably take our best understanding of what love is and we apply it to God. Right? But here's the thing, love does not define God. Rather, God defines love. We get it backwards. God is love. He defines love. You don't look at love to learn about God. You look at God to learn about love. Because God defines love. He is the very essence of love. So this is how love is defined. It's by God. Let's look at how love is demonstrated then in verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now back in chapter 3, verse 16, the focus of God's love was on what Jesus did. It said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But here in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, the focus is more on what God the Father did. Do you see that there? Look at it again. It says, this is how God the Father showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son into as a, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
So this is focused on God the Father. And the first thing we see about this agape love is that it's demonstrated in what God has done. It's not just sentiment or feeling. It's always, always action. Love may have feelings associated with it. Some of them good, some of them bad. Some hurt, some feel good. It may have feelings associated with it, but love itself is always an action. Agape love is always an action. In fact, love can only be known by the actions that it prompts. Let me try to illustrate that this way. Let's say we have two husbands, husband number one and husband number two. And husband number one says, I love my wife. And husband number two responds, well, I really love my wife. Okay, so husband number one says, well, I really, really, really love my wife. And husband number two says, you don't love your wife as much as I love your wife. No, as much as I love my wife. Well, which one loves his wife more? Which one? You can't tell. Why not? Because we can't see what they're doing, right? We can't tell because love can only be known by the actions that it prompts. And that's why 1 John 3.18 said this, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. In other words, to just love with words written or spoken would be a false love if you don't back it up with actions. God's agape love is demonstrated in what he does. And when we look at what God the Father has done, we're going to see the same three characteristics that we saw of God the Son. And I'm, I'm going to treat them in the same order that I did back in chapter 3, even though our text has them in a little different order. But first, we see that God's agape love is unconditional. Look at verse 10. This is love, agape love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The fact is, we didn't love God. He loved us. We didn't love him. We hated him. Mankind hated God. Romans 5.10 says we were enemies of God. Yet, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Mankind hated God. God loved us anyway. His love is unconditional. It doesn't depend on our own initiative or our own worthiness. We don't have to clean up our act in order to be loved by God. We don't have to reach out to him or even believe in him to be loved by God. Did you believe in God when he loved you? No, you were his enemy. God loved us even when he... We were his enemy. We did nothing to deserve his love because his love is unconditional. It's who God is. And it's only because he loved us first that we can now love him. That's what verse uh, 19 says in chapter 4. We love God because he first loved us even when we were his enemy. Unconditional love is such a foreign concept to the world. But it's exactly the type of love that people in the world need. When we talk about the need for love, this is a type of love that we need. 
I heard about a woman who accompanied her husband to the doctor's office and after his checkup, the doctor called the wife into his office alone. And he said to her, your husband is suffering from a very severe stress disorder. If you don't do the following, your husband will surely die. And the doctor said, each morning, fix him a healthy breakfast. Be pleasant at all times. For lunch, make him a nutritious meal. For dinner, prepare an especially nice meal for him. Don't burden him with chores. Don't discuss your problems with him. It'll only make his stress worse. No nagging. And most importantly, make love to your husband several times a week. If you can do this for the next 10 months to a year, I think your husband will re regain his health completely. Well, on the way home, the husband asked his wife, so what did the doctor say to you? She said, he said, you're going to die. <laughs> She's not going there. <laughs> he doesn't deserve that kind of treatment. Unconditional love is so foreign to us. God doesn't love like that. His love is totally unconditional. Well, secondly, God's agape love is humble. Now, we often think of the humility of Jesus, don't we? Jesus said, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And in Philippians 2, we read that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. We know about the humility of Jesus. But do you ever think about the humility of God the Father? Because Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus was in very nature God. They share the same nature, essence, character. They're one in the same in terms of character. So do you ever think about the humility of God the Father? I mean, it's kind of hard. You might say, well, how could he be humble? He was almighty God. How could he be humble? Well, he was humble. If you think about it, he sent his son into the world. He subjected his son to a ruthless, sinful world that would brutally abuse and slaughter his son. He could have demonstrated his power by just wiping out the world. But he didn't. He humbled himself and he sent his son into the world to be killed by sinful mankind. Philippians 2 says that humility is not only looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what God the Father did. He didn't look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. He sent his one and only son into the world. That is a tremendous act of humility. Well, third, God's agape love is sacrificial. It says in verse 10, he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You might have the word propitiation. I wish we had time to get into that. I chose not to this time. It'll come up again and we'll talk about exactly what propitiation is. But he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is real similar to another verse that John penned in his gospel. The most well-known verse in the Bible. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, when we were lost, blind, dead in our sins, hopeless, helpless, God didn't just send out good thoughts. He didn't just send his condolences. 
Or like we said the other week, he didn't just send a sympathy card. It says he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. He gave up the most precious thing he had for our benefit so that we might live. God is a giver. He's a sacrificial giver. He not only gave his son, Ephesians 2.8 says, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's a gift that God has given us, salvation. 1 Peter 1, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. He's given you that. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. God is a giver, and he demonstrated it in the way he sacrificially gave his son to us. So what does agape love of God look like? It's nothing like what modern society calls love. It's not some sappy, sentimental feeling. Rather, agape love is the unconditional, humble sacrificial giving of oneself for the well-being of others. That's agape love. And this is what God is. God is agape love. And he demonstrated it. So let's look finally at how this love is displayed. Verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, since we so loved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Verse 11 begins the same way as verse 8, dear friends. And that's the NIV translation. If you have a New King James or an Old King James or an ESV or many other translations, it uses just one word, beloved. I like that a lot better. It's not a common word anymore. When have you said, my beloved? I mean, I don't know. You might hear that in a wedding or something, but we don't use that much anymore. But it's really cool because what it's saying is, you who are dearly loved. Read the verse that way. You who are dearly loved, since God so loved us, we, also, we ought also to love one another. So verses 8 and 11 both start by reminding the readers that they are dearly loved. They're dearly loved by John and they're dearly loved by God. And then verse 11 is a continuation of the answer to our question, why? Why should we love one another? And this answer continues, beloved, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. How did God so love us? He so loved us. That kind of sounds kind of contemporary. God so loved us. I so, you hear that a lot. People use the word so. How did he so love us? He so loved us unconditionally, humbly, and sacrificially by sending his son to die for us. And since he did, he says, you ought to so love one another. You ought to love one another the same way with an agape love. Now, it's worded rather gently here in this verse. But agape love is not a suggestion. It's a commandment. We don't want to miss that point. Look ahead to verse 21. 
it says he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And back up to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Period. Pretty cut and dried, isn't it? Again, love and salvation are so tightly intertwined that it is the evidence of salvation. Love is the evidence of salvation or the evidence of the lack thereof. So how can we love like this? unconditionally, humbly, sacrificially. How can we love like this? We can't on our own. We cannot. But when we're saved, we're no longer on our own. Remember that our human spirit is joined with God's Holy Spirit? That marvelous thing that we talked about, that act of regeneration. And we take on a divine nature, Scripture says. He pours His love into our hearts. He doesn't sprinkle it or spoon it. He pours it abundantly into our hearts. When we take on his divine nature and he pours that love into our hearts, when we felt the guilt of our sin lifted off of us and we felt him changing us by the power of his love, when we feel that ourselves and when we experience the blessing of this relationship that we enjoy with the Lord, we so desperately want that for others. Amen? It's just too good to keep to ourselves. We want it for our family members who don't know the Lord. We want it for our coworkers, for our friends and neighbors. We want it so badly that we'll do almost anything to see them worshiping the same God and knowing Him the way that we know Him. That is an overflow of God's love that he pours into us when we so desperately want to see others with that same love. This is what it's talking about. Now, we don't do that perfectly, but we should be doing it increasingly. Again, it's not perfection, it's progress. And so, it is God's love that enables us to love others with a God-like love. So another question, will you always feel like doing it? No, you won't. But agape love is not about feelings. It's about action. And it's an action that's often opposed to a feeling. It's the exact opposite of a feeling. Did Jesus feel like going to the cross? No, he didn't. I hope I don't burst in anybody's bubble, but he didn't feel like going. He said, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Why? Because I don't feel like doing this. Nonetheless, he submitted to the will of the Father and he demonstrated agape love. Self-sacrificing, unconditional love. That's the kind of love that God calls us to. We may not feel like it. It doesn't matter. Will you ever feel like loving your enemies? If you ever do, you know, we don't really feel in our flesh like doing that. But we're to do it anyway. Love, agape love is an action that's often opposed to a feeling. So God showed this type of love among the apostles by sending his son into the world. It said in verse 9, do you think 
God still desires to show this type of love to the world? I do. But how does he do it? How's the world going to see this? God is spirit, we saw. He's invisible. How's the world going to see God's love? Jesus isn't walking the earth right now. The apostles saw it. John began this epistle saying, that which we've seen, which our hands have handled, which we've touched, this we proclaim. I can't see him. You can't either. How's the world going to see the love of God? Verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God. Now by that, it means the full unveiled nature of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But we haven't seen the full unveiled glory of God. They got a little bit of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. But no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. In other words, his love is seen in us. It's God's plan in these last days to display his agape love to the world in the most marvelous of ways. He wants to display it through his church. Through men and women who were once enemies of God. But have repented of their sin and been forgiven. And, and have been joined with the spirit of God. And he's poured his love into their heart. And they've been transformed by this great love of God. And they've been recreated. They've been made into something brand new. The old is gone. The new has come. And I think that this recreation is even more glorious than God's original creation. See, God knew we would fall. Why did he create us knowing that we'd sin and all of that? Because he would redeem us. It was the plan from the beginning. And his recreation would be more spectacular, more glorious than his original creation. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said this. He said in Luke 15, 7, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The recreation is more glorious. Remember when the prodigal son came home? He threw a feast. It was a great celebration. He didn't do that for the son had been with him all along. See, God's recreation shows a whole new element of his character. God would take upon himself the punishment and death that we deserve so that he could offer us his life, his eternal life. It would demonstrate in a very profound way his unconditional, humble, and sacrificial love in a way that nothing else could. Am I behind? Let's see. Oh, no, now I'm way ahead. Don't look, don't look. I don't know where I am. I'm lost in the PowerPoint. God's recreation, his regeneration of mankind displays his love in a remarkable way. Help me out, John. There we go. Thank you. So it says his love is made complete in us. Your translation might say perfected. His love is demonstrated in a beautiful way through us, his church, his redeemed creatures that have now taken on the divine nature of God. And this is why he says, if you're not loving others, you're not of God. You haven't been born of God because they go hand in hand. And so when a, when a sinner repents, there's rejoicing in heaven. There's no account of the angels rejoicing after the sixth day of creation. 
But when a sinner repents, the recreation, there's rejoicing in heaven. God's love is made complete in and through us, his children. So I mentioned earlier someone living in a home with an unbelieving spouse, a spouse who's filled with degrading, disparaging, hurtful words, self-centered, selfish in almost everything he does, completely unable to love. It seems so bleak, but there is a marvelous opportunity in this because it's in this kind of darkness that the light of Christ shines the brightest. It's in this kind of situation where we have an opportunity, an even greater opportunity to show the unconditional love of God. Amen? We can show what love looks like. And it's this kind of unconditional love that can soften the heart of a, a really hard-hearted person. After all, it wasn't God's justice that led us to repentance, was it? What was it? It was God's kindness that led us to repentance. We love him only because he first loved us. We have an opportunity when dealing with an, an, an unbelieving world to show them unconditional love. That's not condemnation. We're called to love them humbly, sacrificially, unconditionally. This is what will touch people. This is how God's love is perfected in us when the world sees that type of love. There's a Swedish proverb that says, love me when I least deserve it because that is when I really need it. Amen. I think that's so true. I see people at Riverside loving others with an agape love. It's a real joy when new people come to our church and they say that they've seen and they've felt the love of God in this place. We heard it several times at the Newcomers Connection a couple weeks ago. It brings me joy. Just this week, I've seen the love of God in many, many different ways, agape love. I've seen people preparing to go around the world to Africa to teach lost souls and to equip pastors to minister to lost souls, to teach the gospel. I've seen people giving money and Bibles to their effort to support them. I've seen people working with technology here at home so that we can worship God together and so that that message can go out to those outside these walls. I've seen people praying for those who are hurting. I've seen people pouring their lives into others through time together and fellowship. I've seen people preparing meals for those who have a need. I've seen people working with children to point them to the love of God. I've seen people counseling, teaching, encouraging, speaking the truth in love. I've seen people loving the lost and the least. And I only see just a fraction of what actually goes on. But God sees it all. And I believe there is a lot of agape love within this church body. And you know what? That's how we know. That is the absolute certainty of our salvation. 1 John 3.14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So this is the evidence, the certainty of our salvation, our love for one another. So as we wrap this up, I just want to make it really practical 
and at the same time really personal. Let's each ask ourselves this question. Hope I got the right slide up there. Yeah. How have I loved others with an agape love this past week? How have I loved them unconditionally or humbly or sacrificially? Think about that for a minute. How much time have I spent loving myself? You know, self-love is not biblical. People say, well, you can't love others until you love yourself. That's not in the Bible. How much time have I spent loving others with an agape love? And we need to think about that because we're called to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. What kind of love is that? It's not eros, it's not phileo. We're to spur one another on toward agape love and good deeds. And then another question that's just as important. How can I love others with an agape love today? This week? In the weeks and years that follow? What would that look like for me to love others with an agape love? For the world to see God's love through me? Dear friends... Beloved, let us, not, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we echo the words of Scripture that say how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. We didn't deserve this love, God. We did nothing to earn it, but you poured it out as a pure act of love and grace. And God, we thank you for it, Lord. And God, we just ask that by your Spirit, you'd place those, your hand upon those areas in our lives, in our heart that are unpleasing to you. God, and that we would come to you in repentance and that we would change, that we'd be transformed, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, God, but doers of the word. Lord, help us to love one another as you've loved us so that the world might see your love, your glory, your beauty through us. And so, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.